Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And we have the great pleasure to be speaking today with Professor Francis Flannery of James Madison University in Virginia, a lady who knows a thing or two about dreams, dreaming, visions, and specifically can tell us about dreams in Judaism in antiquity. So, Francis, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So let's start at the beginning, at least in a cursory way, and talk about dreams in antiquity. And then we'll move into the Jewish stuff. Sure, great idea. Have a context. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that your listeners already know that dreams in antiquity are quite different than our post-Freudian conception of dreams. Whereas we tend to think of dreams as something that are unreal, maybe that reveals something about the psychology of the dreamer and perhaps our present or our past at best, ancient peoples believed that they were utterly real events. They did know of psychological status dreams like I ate chili peppers and I had a nightmare, but um, they also believed in that whole category of divinely sent dreams. And these were utterly real events. In fact, the dream itself, as the historian Leo Oppenheim remarked, were a kind of cushion. And I love that word, a cushion for reality. In other words, if I was an ancient Assyrian or a Hittite trucking along and I suddenly encountered an angel, then the shock of it, of encountering an angel or a divinity, would probably um, hurt me or maybe even kill me. But if I encountered this being in a message dream, there would be a kind of cushion for me experiencing this otherworldly realm, and I could still get the message that the deity intended for me to have. So another thing that's very unique to dreams in antiquity is not only were they considered to be real, so real that a dream being could give you um, something in a dream Yeah, for example, like Athena giving Bellerophon a golden bridle in a dream. And afterwards, the bridle is still there. Right. And so it's very real, uh, but it can also tell you about the future. So it's even more real than the mundane reality that we ordinarily inhabit, because it is, um, if you will, kind of ultimately real experience of the realm that divine beings inhabit. So it's even more real. Um, And that's quite different than our perspective of dreams, quite different than our um, subjective uh, manifestation of our Freudian id desires, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got to really change our framework when we're reading these ancient dreams. And it's really hard to not impose our own viewpoints on these dreams. Right. So that brings up questions of interpretation which maybe we can come back to a bit later on. Like, if you're trying to get a sort of emic interpretation of a, an ancient dreamer, do you have to believe that they actually are being visited by a, an angel, for example, in a concrete way? I think what you have to do is you have to take seriously that they are experiencing something. Right. Just as in a laboratory today, we can put an electrode about two inches above your left ear and in about another two inches and stimulate your temporal spatial lobe. And you might see, depending on your cultural context, Mother Mary or a demon 
or an alien or a ghost, you're experiencing it, but that does not indicate whether those entities are really there or whether there is an entity there that you can now perceive. The technology just simply doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that the experience is real. Mm. Something's happening in the brain. And I think we have to take seriously that uh, some people experience them as if they were real. Or most people, even. Exactly. And so um, Oppenheim called these message dreams in which a person or usually a divine being, um, almost always some sort of divine being and in Judaism, an angel, would visit you and relay some kind of clear message. And it was somebody that you couldn't normally talk to without some kind of other mechanism, like an oracle or mystical preparation. You just can't normally access them. Uh, but the dream or the vision allows you to do so. Um, but then there are symbolic dreams, which um, since you brought up Greece and Rome, Rome was very suspicious of symbolic dreams in general. But in Judaism, especially in apocalypticism, um, they quite favored the symbolic dream, which was a different kind of access of the otherworldly realm because the message was coming to you still, but it was coming in such a complicated, multi-layered, polysemous way that you had to have an interpreter or else it became an evil dream because the interpretation in some way almost drove the reality of the dream. Hmm. Now we're getting a later Jewish dream interpretation, but there was a rabbinic saying that a man had a dream and went to, I think it was 19 or 20 or 23 uh, dream interpreters in Jerusalem and everyone gave him a different interpretation and everyone came true. So the interpretation in some way is almost part of the dream experience and continues to unfold what was in it. And um, since I know that you'll eventually want me to focus on Jewish dreams, I'll say that there's a really big um, innovation there, which I think develops from a Greek motif in which in the Greek dreams, uh, in the Hellenistic dreams, there was an oneros, a dream figure that wasn't quite a deity, wasn't full on, you know, Athena or um, Artemis, but rather was some sort of dream figure. And I think that this function is taken over in Jewish dreams by angels who suddenly appear in the Hellenistic dreams that are extra canonical, uh, unless you count Daniel 7 through 12, which really fits from a different time, doesn't really fit with the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah these angels appear within dreams and talk and, and carry on and um, reveal information and take dreamers on trips and all kinds of things. And none of that really happens in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, that is. Right. Um, so that's innovation. Okay. So let's just maybe briefly dip back in time to the Bible, because um, you're talking of the importance of interpretation makes me think of the story of Joseph in Genesis, yeah. where he basically wipes the floor with everyone else through his skill as a dream interpreter. Yes, he does. And as a dream interpreter, he had a certain standing, a certain amount of wisdom that he had received from, from God. But the innovation in the texts that come just after the Bible are that the interpreters are the angels and they're frequently in the dream. Right. So let me give you an example to unpack what I'm saying. 
So I only go into uh, all of this about the Oneiros uh, because I know that your listeners know about this from episode seven. Yep. Uh, so I can pick up right there without explaining it, which is great. But it's these Oneiroi who are transformed into angelic beings in texts such as Daniel 7 through 12 or in First Enoch. I take chapters 14 all the way to the end of 36 to be one big long dream or Fourth Ezra or Testament of Abraham, I could go on and on, but these angelic interpreters appear within dreams and are just sort of standing there as a dreamer sees all these symbolic visions and needs an interpreter. So for instance, in Daniel, he just turns to the angel who's there in the dream, in what appears to be a throne room with him, maybe the heavenly throne room, and and just gets an interpretation from the person there in the dream. So it's a very rich innovation. But I think the fact that you brought up Joseph and how his stature was increased indicates that some of these dreams, these apocalyptic dreams especially, are so deep that it requires an angelic priestly interpreter to to unpack it. It's too much to just go to the regular old priest. Uh, who would have normally interpreted these dreams. Right. That is fascinating. So do we see that in non-Jewish Hellenistic literature on dreams, or is this really a Jewish thing, the idea that the interpreter is in the dream? I can't really think of anything that's to this extent so uh, so common. Um, I won't say that there isn't some text somewhere where this occurs, but it is certainly a motif that just explodes in Hellenistic uh, Judaism. So we've mentioned some texts that are familiar to our listeners. One Enoch being a key, that's the Book of Watchers, so-called, with its amazing multi-layered vision, which are, you're talking about under the rubric of dreaming, and some other apocalypses that we haven't really spent much time on, but which we've indicated, go check it out. If you're interested, go check out the Book of Daniel. It's got some great stuff, etc. Tell us about your favorite <laughs> apocalyptic work. My favorite work is Fourth Ezra. It's chapters 3 through 14 of 2nd Esdras in the Apocrypha. So if they find the Apocrypha or a Catholic Bible, they can easily find it. Um, And then there's been a beginning, a Christian um, introduction, and a Christian conclusion tacked on. But chapters 3 through 14 is a very coherent work, Jewish, and probably from about the year, let's say, 90 or 100 CE. Okay. And the reason that I love it is that you're interested in esotericism. And I know of no other work that so beautifully charts a sevenfold progression of a mystic through stage after stage after stage. And dreams are only part of this. But the mystic grows in his ability to withstand the realities of the divine realm and to overcome the spatial access so that he can access different realms of space, um, the temporal axis so that he can learn secrets of the future and the past, and an ontological access, meaning that he as a human being can do things that a human being shouldn't be able to do, that only angels should be able to do. So these seven episodes won't necessarily be immediately apparent to your listeners when they read it, because the book is cleverly written at both a public level in which it's just a really nice story about lamenting 
the fate that's come to, well, it's in code, so the, the fate that's come to Jerusalem under the Romans, even though it's really, it's written as if it was under Babylon. Okay, so um, it's pseudepigraphical. But, it's, right. it's set during the Babylonian destruction yes. of the first temple, yeah. but it's really about this destruction of the second temple. Right, and I think that's because you don't really want to criticize Romans when you're living with Romans. Right. Um, right, and so that's just one reason for the pseudepigraphical convention. But there's a whole nother level to, to this book. And if one knows the Merkava uh, mystics, and if one knows the Hecalot text, mm-hmm. then when you're reading it, you can start to see that alongside this very public narrative, which most uninitiated people would read and think is just a real groovy story, is a whole esoteric narrative in which Ezra is becoming more and more and more adept as a mystic. And the entire uh, book culminates with his heavenly ascent before death, it looks like. Right. And so it's fascinating. And, and the seven-stage progression is charted through dreams and visions and is, to my way of thinking, the best example of this kind of um, esoteric um, knowledge that looked at dreams and visions as a kind of cushion. There's one more passage in there you might find interesting in which pivotal moment is after having lots of dreams and before some other dreams, he subsides in a field of poppies. Goodness gracious. For a week. And and lo and behold, has a very special vision. Ah. Um, So yeah, that's really remarkable. That is remarkable. Um, One of the subjects that we haven't really touched on yet in the podcast is the way that the use of conventional and unconventional uh, enhancements can contribute to cultivating altered states of consciousness. And it's a tough one because we often don't have very good direct, like for example, many people have theorized that there was something in the drink that you had at the beginning of the Eleusinian Mysteries because the Eleusinian Mysteries produced a a quite reliably life-changing experience for thousands of people every year. And we know that they drank this thing called the Kakeon at the beginning, and people have speculated, well, there was something in the Kakeon. Because that way, you know, ritual is powerful and everything, but ritual is not that powerful. Like, you can go to a Catholic Mass and just be a bit bored and walk out thinking, well, what just happened? Nothing really was a bit lame. But if you'd drunk some mushrooms or something before you went in, you would have been like, Catholic Mass is incredible. So this is the theory. But unfortunately, there's no direct evidence for it. But when someone lays down in a field of puppies for a week, you start to think. And eats nothing but puppies. Uh, It just has flowers. So, uh, but it seems to be a very clear cause and effect of eating these flowers. And puppies were quite well known in that region and at that time um, to induce altered states and were associated with the god Hypnos and with dreaming. Right. And incidentally, um, the very last stage of this seven-stage progression that I was speaking of, Ezra consumes a fiery drink. And after he drinks it, he's able to pour forth both the Torah, because this is the pseudepigraphic Ezra. So he pours forth the Torah, uh, but also um, 70 esoteric books that are to be kept secret. And I take that whole... Um, uh, that whole episode to be a cipher, a clue for unpacking the entire reading in terms of both the public level and the private level. Because after all, 
what God says to him is make these, exceptionally the whole Tanakh, I think, that he um, receives. And he's told to make public, but he's told to keep these other books secret for those who understand. This is and very I interesting. The book itself, which is in the Catholic Apocrypha, um, is aimed at a dual audience, those who can appreciate a great story in which there's a very cantankerous angel named Uriel who fights with him, and he's my absolute favorite angel, and chews him out repeatedly in, the, in this awesome story, but also a private level in which you understand each episode, which is initiated by dream, a vision, or eating flowers, as another progression in Ezra's mystical journey. This is, to contextualize this in terms of esotericism within Judaism, this um, strikes me as interesting because it's just at this time, so remember, listeners, we're in the, the end of the first century CE, the, the stinging aftermath of the Second Temple period, when there is something called nascent rabbinic Judaism beginning to form, which will have a canonical idea of the oral Torah, the idea of that the revelation, the direct revelation from God isn't all in the book. Yes, well, um, yeah. And it's, it's, it has caretakers who are the rabbis, who are this newly forming elite of uh, non-priests because there's no more temple, but they're sort of like a moving temple. <laughs> they're a, a temple that follows the blokes rather than follows the temple. And they are the custodians of this rather secret esoteric wisdom, which is an idea that will follow us all the way through medieval Judaism to the development of the Kabbalah and so on and so forth. They thought of it as dangerous and pushed it underground in some way. So while they themselves remained experts in some of this wisdom, and my interpretation of Fourth Ezra definitely pushes that um, Merkava and that Hekelo period back earlier than some published scholars would acknowledge, they were practicing these kinds of things. They were encoding these kinds of things uh, apparently thought it was too dangerous for the public. Mm. So start to get prescriptions, for instance, on the book of Ezekiel saying you have to be 40 years old and married and pure and moral and a scholar of Torah. And then eventually it'll be a scholar of Talmud before you can even read these. And, and a bloke. It goes without saying you have to be male. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, duh. <laughs> Well, people might not be familiar with Jewish traditions. They might think, oh, like women, they right, can right, be married right. and scholars of Torah and stuff like this. But this stuff is a very, very much a masculine, masculine province. So is it fair to say that this type of esotericism within Judaism is really beginning in this period? I mean, so going back to the Qumran texts, there is much about these texts that would make us think that this group of Jews were somewhat esoteric, at least in the sense that they were separated off and doing their thing in a very kind of like um, high temperature cultic milieu. They were all together and they were, they maybe thought angels were among them and they, they had this, perhaps this charismatic right. leader. No one knows the details, but these are ideas. So that's one kind of esotericism, like a, a closed sort of sect that's off by itself. But this is another kind of esotericism, which is a, a widely disseminated published work that the author knows is going to fall into all kinds of hands, but which is written in such a way that a level of it will remain hidden, except for those who have the kind of interpretive keys or the interpretive noose to figure it out. That's right. And I would not draw, and I don't think you are, um, a straight line between Qumran and whoever this group is, and nor can, do I have the evidence to really decide who is the social circle behind 
the creation of, of that book. I don't know. What do but, people say? But, do they say Palestine probably? I mean, yeah. but that's yeah, about it. Yeah. That's all we know. But various theories have been floated, um, especially by some scholars in the Enoch Seminar, but I don't think that we have anything um, definitive yet. There's not been anything that just convinces me, oh, we could really say that it is this kind of group, some nascent apocalyptic circle. But the reason that I said practice instead of just themes, right, that these are not just mystical themes, but indicate mystical practice, is I think that we have to step back for a minute and say, if you've got someone who's incubating a dream, you know, lying down in a spot that's very um, special, in that case, in the case of Fourth Ezra, the site, the future site of the Jerusalem temple, and you're eating flowers, or you're weeping and grieving, which was another um, technique for inducing an encounter uh, with an angel in a dream. And then you have this reliable mechanism of an angel showing up, having a conversation with you, and then waking up. And you have this repeatedly, not only in Fourth Ezra, but you know it from cultic materials in the Greco-Roman world. You know it from the Asclepius cult. Um, it's written on the um, Iamata of Epidaros, for instance. And you have these, these techniques for inducing altered states also from cross-cultural examples throughout history and time in other geographic regions. Then we could either say, wow, whoever the author or authors of Fourth Ezra was, was really familiar with these things and, and knew about these practices them themselves. It doesn't seem to me to be credible to say they had somehow read a lot of accounts in which these same themes occurred and then wrote these same fictional setting. Yes, the dreams are very, very stylized and the visions are very stylized, but that doesn't mean that some kind of mystical practice did not lie behind setting pen to paper. Okay, so why do people want to, because I assume the, the way you're, you're stating your position that the, there's some opposition to this. Some people want to say this is just tropological. There is a, a dream yeah, literature and they want... <laughs> <laughs> so um, why do you think people, because when people study the Asclepius literature, the, the incubatory sort of records where people say, I had this dream, Asclepius told me to eat a cat. I ate the cat. I got better. Thank you, Asclepius. No one says, well, they weren't really having the dreams and doing and eating the cat. It's, it's all just thematic. No one says that. They say, yeah, okay, there was this whole ritual practice to do with dreaming in the sanctuary and so on and so forth. Why do, why do people have a problem with that with the, related to the Jewish stuff? Is it because Jews don't do this stuff? Is that the idea? Well, first of all, I have a question for you. Did they really eat a cat? No, that was just a stupid example oh. I came up with. Okay, well, they did They did all kinds of funny stuff. Like Asclepius' yeah. prescriptions are very funny, but I don't think a cat was ever eaten. Okay. Um. I just... <laughs> <laughs> well, a major debate in um, the Society of Biblical Literature, for instance, regarding these apocalyptic and or mystical works in early Judaism has been do real experiences lie behind these things or are they strictly fictional? I can't really speculate as to why individual scholars take that they're strictly fictional. Certainly some have, um, but others such as, especially Michael Stone comes to my mind, have argued for a long time that we shouldn't discount 
the possibility that experiences occur and then reflecting on these experiences, these narratives are crafted. That move, I think, happened in response to some of the work by Eliada, Mircea Eliada, who was, I think, a phenomenal scholar, but then who also made some cross-cultural claims about mystical experience that left people in the guild quite nervous. And so the pendulum shift swung the other direction. And we started talking about the text, in my opinion, as these sort of disembodied, abstract, mental projections for decades. Um, A group that I co-founded, the Religious Experience and Antiquity Program Unit, which published two books called Experientia, volume one and two, tried to take that pendulum shift the other way and to say, what we have in common, despite the history that separates us, the social context that, that separates us, the languages that separate us from antiquity, what we share are bodies. And so if an author is describing an experience in bodily thematic terms or sensorial terms. And if we know that in our bodies, that produces a certain effect, you know, like for instance, the sound of rushing water, right? Which is used to facilitate trances cross-culturally. Then we're really, um, we're really, I think, acting quite hubristically to say that we don't know if that's an experience because all we have is text. So the mantra is all we have is text, but what some of us have been arguing is yes, but the texts were produced by people in bodies and bodies haven't evolved all that much in a couple thousand years. Uh, So we should pay attention to these clues that are spoken about in these texts in terms of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, experiencing, incubating, eating flowers, et cetera that we should take that seriously. I love it. Another thing we very relevantly, an ingredient in having a human body is dreaming because it's physiological. Mm-hmm. You can't live without dreaming. So- You become neurotic, yeah. Yeah, become psychotic if you if your dream yeah. cycle is messed up enough as, they, as um, army interrogators worldwide are well familiar with. Let's talk a little bit with your ascent about ascent. <laughs> what, what role does ascent play in Jewish dreams in the Hellenistic and Roman periods? Well, a very big one, because before the Hellenistic Jewish dream texts, um, all the texts that we have that speak about an ascent or a descent, because I don't think that there's qualitatively a difference. Um, If we think about the ancient Near Eastern, Ishtar's descent to the netherworld, etc., then there are quite a number of important parallels. Uh, to some of the texts that we have. So whether you're going up or you're going down, you could access these other realms in a dream. And I think that that probably came out of, as I've been arguing, real dreaming. I mean, when I have a dream, I can suddenly be back in my high school, but it can be in multiple locations and I can be multiple ages. And then I can um, you know, impart all the wisdom that I have now at this age uh, to that crowd, and then I can fly away. You know, All the regular rules are suspended in dream logic. And so ancient Near Eastern texts did play around with these kinds of um, ascents or descents, but they were quite simple in comparison to what occurs in Hellenistic Judaism. 
And I think that Hellenistic Judaism just blows the lid off the dream logic that dictates the rules for otherworldly journeys or soul journeys. Come so much more complicated, so much more rich, much longer as in the case of the Book of the Watchers. And I think that this probably um, influenced uh, something like the dream of Scipio. The otherworldly journey motif is just so much more complicated and rich and descriptive in that material as compared with what came before. Um, and then the next sort of moment that we see like that would be the dream of Scipio. And so I can't draw a solid line, but um, I would say that it's Hellenistic Judaism that introduces this, these amazing dream journeys that are so much more complex than what came before. You know, there's another aspect to this um, that we haven't touched on, which uh, I haven't fully worked out, but I think that the, the richness of that um, ability of a dreamer to just, in Enoch's case, for instance, go to the edges of the earth or uh, shoot up into the heavens or go to um, the Garden of Eden that nobody else can go to is intertwined in some way in this period with the concept of what happens to the soul in death. And it's interesting to remark that the only autobiographical account that we have in early Judaism of that kind of ascent, and it's very vague, but most scholars take it as an autobiographical account, is the Apostle Paul, mm. who's about, um, I know a man, you know, I know someone, I, I'm asking for a friend, not for myself, but um, I know a man who went up to the third heaven. Right. And saw things, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But there's a passage in um, a text called the Testament of Abraham from about the same time as Fourth Ezra, maybe 100 CE. That's what um, Nikolai Roddy thinks, who interpreted it and translated it. And it states that God turned and pulled the soul of Abraham out at his death as in a dream. And so that clue seems to indicate that at least some Jewish authors thought that what you were doing in a dream is traveling around the cosmos out of your body. There's parallels in the Greek tradition as well, because going all the way back to the pseudo-Hippocratic writings where you actually get people trying to figure out what happens physiologically when you dream, there is this right. idea that the there's a reason we can see prophecies and things like that in our dreams, and that's because the the soul is free from the body's distractions. Right. And you get this in philosophy as well, the idea that when the higher part of the soul, whether it's the logisticon or the noose, or you know, depending on which philosophical school you subscribe to, you'll have a different name for it. When that higher part, the part that's divine, is free of the body, because the body's asleep, it can do wonderful things. It has a clearer vision. The soul is awake when the body is asleep, basically. And that's And there's not just probably one model, but that's certainly a really important model. And we see that in some of these Jewish dream texts. And you remind me of something that I'd like to comment on, the way that we speak about these dreams. It's commonly said, and I've done this as well, that dreams are seen, right? They're not had. And that's true to an extent, but the verbs that we're translating as to see aren't really to see. They're really something more like visioning. Now, are um, you talking about translating from Aramaic and Hebrew or 
Aramaic, um, any of the Semitic languages, chazah, chalom, but uh, chazah as a verb, whether we're talking about Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, there's been, I think, a little bit of a disservice done to um, those reading in English in that we translate this verbal form of the word vision as to see, but this is not ordinary seeing. And then especially when an author very intentionally switches between seeing, like I looked, right? I looked and I saw this thing and something that's more like I visioned this or I was in, it's not envisioning either. So it's more like the archaic behold, like I beheld this. It is something different. It's a numinous state and it's an activity that takes place within a dream sometimes. Um, it can take place within a dream. It can take place when you're awake. But think that we've misled some English readers by just translating that word as to see. So I myself have written that dreams are seen and visions are seen. And I'm trying to be more precise about that now to say visions are beheld. And this is something odd. And this is something numinous and something mystical going on. We really need a new word. Hmm. Well, maybe beheld, maybe, maybe the King James Bible is the way to go. So dreams and death, there's a link there. Now in the Greco-Roman tradition, of the people who can visit you in a dream, one is a god, one is an oneros who might be some kind of form of a god, form a god takes in a dream, but also a dead person can visit you. So the dead can come up from the underworld. This is in the archaic sort of Homeric model. They can come up from the underworld and communicate with you in dreams, which they can't do when you're awake. And um, the tradition of speaking with the dead in dreams goes on into the classical period as well. Um, but this is something slightly different, it seems. This In the Testament of Abraham, the, the actual removal of someone's soul at death by God is compared to A dream. the act of dreaming. It is very interesting because, um, again, going back to Homer and just sort of cross-culturally um, associating, uh, sleep and death are brothers. The god, the god Thanatos and the god Hypnos are brothers, so they're, they're definitely related states. And interestingly enough, um, getting back to our discussion about poppies, poppies were often uh, drawn uh, or sculpted onto sarcophagi. And so there's that parallel, once again, between sleep and death. So what kind of evidence do we have for, I guess, what you might call Jewish dreaming culture in antiquity that isn't in apocalyptic texts? Because the apocalypses are the unavoidable place to go for visions and dreams and stuff like that. But we have, I mean... I'm put in mind of the, this amazing passage in Juvenal where he mentions, he mentions scornfully, if you want a, a dream, just go to a Jewess on the market in Rome and she'll sell you any dream you want. And isn't that interesting? I, I'm so fascinated with that passage. And I'm still trying to figure out what that says about the social milieu of dreaming um, and especially gendered dreaming in that period. There are uh, about a hundred early Jewish dream texts um, that I've studied. And I haven't counted the apocalypses, but that's, you know, a small minority of them. And the other texts appear, you know, for instance, in um, Josephus and Philo in the New Testament, in texts such as Pseudophilo. And these fulfill the typical 
functions of a dream in antiquity of imparting extraordinary knowledge, whether that be something in the cosmos or something in that person's life, something about the future, healing, especially healing of anguish, psychological healing, and then either divine sanction or divine punishment of some sort. But one thing that I find interesting is that we get a couple instances only, maybe five or so, of women's dreams, and all the rest are male. And in um, in the Greek dreams, um, you know, we get women who are dreaming, although interestingly enough, they dream really confused dreams. They don't dream the clear message dream. They usually have symbolic dreams, hmm. real murky dreams, I think. Uh, again, getting back to the patriarchal cultures of antiquity, Mediterranean antiquity. But these Jewish women, they have dreams. They're almost always negative dreams. And a couple of the texts, such as Pseudophilo, show the male characters disbelieving that they had a dream and mocking them and saying like, yeah, sure you had a dream. So I think there was also some sort of gendered expectation that it's men who got these divinely sent dreams. And that makes that juvenile quote so bizarre because he very clearly says, I could go to any Jewess and ask for a dream, right? Yeah. Maybe they can sell them, but they can't have them themselves. Maybe that's the idea. Maybe they're interpreting, but that would indicate a rise in their stature that doesn't seem quite right. So I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I've, I, I like to put that one to all the people I talk to about dreams because no one knows what it means. I have a theory, which is that it was a kind of um, person-based incubation, um, like sort of folk incubation tradition, whereby the Jews, as we know, had a, had a reputation among non-Jews for being able to coerce supernatural powers to do what you want. So they were considered magicians by some people. They were considered in both the legit and illegitimate right senses of that term and um the jewish women in rome in the marketplace for whatever reason maybe a bit like gypsies in some european cultures had this reputation that if you want to dream say you want to dream because you want to find out what's happened to your sheep that's lost a dream can tell you right a dream the god can appear to you and say that dude stole your sheep so you want the dream to find out about your sheep so you go to the jew lady and say look here's my sestercius I need a dream telling me where my sheep is. And she does some kind of something or other. Maybe she gives you a little potion. Maybe she gives yeah. you a bit of paper with some, some Hebrew scribbled on it and says, put this under your pillow. You'll have the dream. And you go home and have it. You know, that makes a lot of sense um, because uh, sort of a witch of Endor style of folk religion that isn't quite as esteemed as the great tradition that's occurring under the male priestly line, right? right? As we get into the Roman period, or even the Greek period, of magical amulets, especially in Egypt, um, but throughout the Greco-Roman world, we get these um, incantations that are built on Hebrew words. And, it, and that's not in and of itself enough evidence to say that these were of Jewish provenance, but it shows that Judaism held a kind of magical or mystical, I don't really like the word magical, but a kind of mystical cachet among the people who were seeking alternative religions, I guess, um, a way of accessing the divine, um, other than just going to the temple of Zeus. 
Francis Flannery. Thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. And uh, until the next time you dream, stay esoteric. <laughs>